salvation of your soul is a one-time event and a process event and an eternity event. So there's basically three sections. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith. It is not something that we can do for you, but it's something we can come alongside you and help encourage you, challenge you, and entertain you with some bad jokes along the way. Uh, teach you to think critically for yourself. Absolutely. My name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host, and we cannot do the Salty Pastor Podcast without the one, the only Salty Pastor himself, Dr. Douglas Peak. Good to be here with you people. I'm really happy that we're doing Salty Pastor just regular go get them and the study of first peter is uh really really sparking a lot of new ground for me and i'm excited about it so we are in our brand new series called don't freak yes. out everyone's freaking out today Everybody over is everything freaking out and uh we live in this crazy chaotic world that yes. people are constantly freaking out and i see the impact on my generation specifically we oh, see yeah. anxiety depression mm -hmm. mental health issues dominating my generation yeah the inability to develop long-lasting relationships mm -hmm. to find purpose in their yes. life it's a big problem it's a huge challenge and you mm -hmm. could say my entire generation are the kings and queens of <laughs> freaking out. So uh, talk to us, Pastor. What should well, we I be doing? Well, I think what's happened is that your generation and then the younger generation, Gen Z, is reaping what we have sown over the last 50 years. So, so we're blaming your generation is yes. what you're saying. <laughs> well, in essence, just think about it. I mean, kids have never changed. Kids have always been kids. Kids grow up into what parents develop them into. Right. And what's changed is parenting and your generation, the second half of the millennials and well, almost all the millennials and the Gen Z are victims of all this progressive, weird, gobbledygook parenting strategies that mm. turned out to be an absolute and unequivocal disaster. They're all based on one ideology and that is deconstructing belief in God. Mm. This notion that you can create a secular environment that grows children into adults uh, and come out with this phenomenally good, uh, you know, courageous, filled with character, virtuous adult. Right. And what we've seen is not only can you not do that, what you actually do is you undercut any opportunity for that child to discover in their adult years meaning and purpose and significance in life. So... Uh, I think that what we're doing is we're reaping what was sown over the last 50 years, this deconstruction of belief in God. So what people don't realize is that in deconstructionism, they just say, we don't believe that because I find a flaw in it. But by default, you're saying you believe in something else. And very few people stop and go, well, what's this other thing that I say I believe in? Right. And C.S. Lewis articulated this very well when he said, you look through a, a window, right, in order to see the garden outside or the landscape outside. 
He goes, but what you deconstructionists are doing is you're saying, I'm looking through a window and what I see outside is actually just a window. And then that's a window of a window. And so in, mm. in other words, all you do is looking through windows and you see nothing. And that's what nihilism is all about. And anxiety, depression, lack of meaning, lack of hope, uh, inability to discover who you are, have a sense of value that your life matters is impossible when you start from a, a nihilistic framework. Right. And so that's why I think studying what uh, Peter's first letter to the church is doing is because it, it's so important for us today because it's helping us understand that the first century church was uh, trying to uh, survive mm. the persecution of the Neronian persecution. But what Nero did was an ideology. And today we can take these biblical principles and we can persevere through this ideological persevere, uh, ideological persecution that we're suffering today and seeing the end result of it. So last week we went through chapter one, where yes. Peter spends a significant time and, and space in the nature of salvation, yes, right? all about what, salvation. what it means, what happens, why it's so important. Now, where does he go when we move into chapter two, which is what we're studying this week? Well, just kind of recap real quick. The end of chapter one, he says the whole point of faith is the salvation of your soul. And I think it's very important to understand is that salvation of your soul is a one-time event and a process event and an eternity event. So there's basically three sections, Okay, I would say. Break it down to three. It's Trinitarian, you might say. The first thing is this, is that there is, I am born again. I am redeemed by God. Then I am given as a deposit the seal of the Holy Spirit. So I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when I'm redeemed. Okay, this is God's divine presence within me. Then from that point forward until the day I die physically, that is an entire process of what is the Holy Spirit going to do in me? Mm. Okay. So it's about growth. Right. Okay. And sometimes it's about healing hurts from the past. Sometimes it's about changing thought patterns that are destructive. Sometimes it's changing behaviors that are bad for my soul and bad for me and bad for people around me. Sometimes it's giving me wisdom and teaching me uh, through endurance, what wisdom really is. I mean, we see all of these biblical promises, right? And then finally I die. And then what happens is then I am now in heaven with God. And so now I am at a third stage of what it means. So I, I just don't have the divine presence of God in my life. I am in God's divine present completely. Right. Right. So the, the, Holy Spirit, it says in Ephesians, is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So it's a little bit, today you get a little bit of a taste of what heaven's like. And that's what our souls long for. So I think it's really important to understand that that's what he's talking about. So I believe everybody is on a soul journey and it's basically heal my soul, whether people follow Jesus or not. It, they're on a happiness quest or a fulfillment path. And the gospel was preached to these people in the first century to say, this is how you do it. Okay. The law from the old Testament won't do it. Paganism won't do it. The world won't do it. Jesus Christ is the savior. He is the only one who can heal your soul. And the reason why so few people find fulfillment, healing and complete joy in their life is because they never actually challenge their assumptions of why they are searching and looking and doing what they're doing. 
to heal their soul. They just think, oh, I'll just make these assumptions and I'll just go after this and I will be happy. Mm. You know, some of the things that we do is like we say, well, you know, the old adage, I've been rich, I've been poor and rich is much better. So, wow, um, man, if I just have enough money or more money, I'll be happier, right? And there's nothing wrong with working hard. That's not what I'm talking about. There's nothing wrong with about working hard, being compensated for your effort and doing well. But that's really close. Uh, I, w- I want to say it's a fine line between this notion of I'm working and productive and, and being compensated for that, which is awesome. And if I get this, I'm going to be happier. Right. See, there's a big difference chasing, between those two. Chasing the dragon, right. basically. It's like, it's like, and it's like uh, love, right? And today we see this all the time is that, well, if I have uh, genital pleasure sexually, then I'm going to be a happy person. You know, the goal is, well, is you can have as much sex as you want, then you're going to be happy, right? Well, that turns out to not be true. And so the reason why people uh, do what they do today is because at a deep spiritual level, they've never actually challenged their assumptions. They, they've never actually sat down in a very, you know, esoteric moment where their mind is clear and they say to themselves, why in the world do I think closing one more deal is going to make me happy or having more money is going to make me happy? You know, why do I believe that? And it's not, how do I stop that? Cause I don't like it. It's actually, why do I believe that? Why is it that I believe that makes me significant? Uh, why is it chasing romantic relationships is what I think is going to make me happy. But you talk to people who have multiple, multiple relationships and they go from thing to thing to thing are some of the most empty, lonely people there are, mm. right? They're always around people, but they're the loneliest person in the room. Right. So, so what, what happens is it's because we've never challenged our assumptions of why we think these things. So therefore challenging your assumptions is critical and necessary in the step to salvation in the healing of your soul. And that's why it's a process. What is the best way to challenge any assumption that you have? And that is compare what you're doing and what you believe to an objective truth. So when you hear the truth, that's when you can challenge your assumptions. When you see and know the world in which you live as you've never seen it before, because the truth, this objective truth peels back the layers and reveals to you the actual reality in which you live. So to see and know yourself in a way that you never understood before. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 1:13, and I read it last week is, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message. Notice you hear it. So you're hearing a truth an objective truth from outside of you. It comes into your ears, right? The gospel of your salvation. So it wasn't just any truth, right? It isn't that, you know, gravity is a certain force in the universe or the law of entropy. Well, those are truths, but that's not what he's talking. He's about the gospel of your salvation. That's the truth you need to hear. And he says, once you hear the gospel of your salvation, then you believe and you are marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is that once you hear the truth, you believe the truth, then it peels back the layers so you see the reality in which you live. Christianity at its core is a truth claim. And this truth claim peels back the layers of all the assumptions that we've been trained to base our thinking on. So how you think through something is just as important as what you were thinking about. In our past, Salty Pastors, we've talked about 
one of the biggest issues today is that postmodern deconstructionism isn't so much what you think, it's, you're, it's training you how to think a certain way. And that certain way always ends in nihilism or nihilism. Right. Every single time. Lack of meaning and purpose. There's nothing to believe in. So when we go back to what Peter's doing in chapter one, he's establishing the reality, the gospel of our salvation, and what happens to us when we become saved in order for us to understand how to live in chapter two. So that's what he's doing in chapter two. So this is why at the beginning of chapter two, we see that all important (laughs) word, therefore. So all of the things you've talked about over the last week, what you just said just now in the first portion of this podcast, all leads up to this big therefore to begin the second chapter. And where does that take us? Well, there's so much to to get to. And if you don't understand the historical context, you miss a lot of it, right? Okay. And one, one of the most important aspects of reading the Bible, this is a critical thinking skill, and that is you read it and then you ask yourself, the first question is, what did this mean to the person it was written to? Right. Understanding when these books start and they say, to the church in blank or You know, if you're yeah. in the Old Testament, it was Cappadocia, to the Bithynia whole, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Or I the mean, nation of Israel or right. whatever. Yeah. How, how do they, what, what did they think it meant when they heard it? Or right? what was going on in their church exactly. or community at the time that they were writing? Context about. is everything. Yes. Context is everything. Or you can misinterpret it really easily and also miss a lot of the, the depth and the power of it. Too. You skim over it and you miss that as well. Right. So listen to what he says in verses one and two and three. He says, therefore, word you talked about, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So see what he's saying is that, okay, therefore you've tasted the Lord is good. You are, you've been saved and redeemed. Now what you need to do is you're in the second phase and you need to grow. And like an infant, you need to long for the pure spiritual milk, right? Mm. The stuff that's really going to nourish you. And what is the stuff that's not going to nourish you? It's malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Now, He says basically that based on your salvation, which is about your soul, you cannot live in a way that makes war with your soul and grow as a Christian. What you do, what you take in makes all the difference. Are you focused on taking in the pure spiritual milk? Notice the phrase, you must grow up in your salvation. And in Greek, the preposition there that they translate in can be translated in different ways as a preposition. So it can say, you need to grow up in your salvation, or it can be translated, you can grow up on your salvation. And so it's really important to understand is that you need to grow up on the foundation of your salvation. You need to grow up in the context of what it means to be a redeemed person. Don't live in a way that makes a war with your soul, but live in a way that feeds your soul. So Peter really connects this idea of a strong faith to a growing faith, very similar to if you want to be strong, you have to be growing. You have to be doing the work. You can't be stagnant. Otherwise you start losing. Train yourself for righteousness. Same thing in the faith. You, if you're not training, 
you're losing. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Um, so pure spiritual milk creates that growth. So what does Peter move on to next in the next? Well, the, he, he talks in the next chunk of verses, verses four through eight, basically that this is you what he's building you into. Okay. So he's building you into a house. Yeah. That you want to crave this. You want to get rid of that, crave this because God is going to build you into something. Listen to what he says. Now, as you come to him, so as I'm growing in him, right, I'm getting closer to him. He says he is the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And so what is it? What was the priesthood to them? You know, we have what we think is a priest, but to them, what the priesthood was is that the priest was supposed to be a conduit mm. through which people experience God. So he's saying you're a Royal priesthood. When you uh, are growing in your faith, you become a conduit for God's work in the world. You were offering spiritual sacrifices. You're not offering, you know, Oh, I got to go get two doves and sacrifice them. Or I got to get a goat or a cow or a lamb or whatever. That's he says. Now you are spiritually offering, you're offering yourself to be used by God. He goes, and when you offer spiritual sacrifices, this is what is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ makes your gift righteous to God. Acceptable. It's acceptable. Yeah. And then in scripture, it says, now he talks about some Old Testament stuff that the early church, particularly the Jewish contingent, were very familiar with. He says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, I think this is important to understand. So when I want to grow, I get put away anger, wrath, malice, envy, slander, all that kind of stuff, because those are the things that I think will get me what I want, but they end up cheating me. When I get closer to God and Christ, because I'm a redeemed person, right? Craving the pure spiritual milk. Now I am going to never be put to shame and I will be growing strong. And then he says this now to you who believe this stone is precious. So Jesus is the foundation of our faith. But to those who do not believe the stone, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he says in verse eight, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So these people are suffering because of what Nero has done. Right. And so all these people, if you remember the quote from Tacitus, where it says these Christians were hated for their enormities mm. and well, what does enormities mean? Well, it was their claims. There aren't, there's not multiple gods. There's one. Uh, we follow Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead. These bold proclamations. These were bold proclamations. And so people were like, oh, we can't stand you. And it's just like today, you know, with political correctness and cancel culture and all that kind of stuff that these people don't like people who make bold claims based on objective truth. Right. You see, it's very similar. So whether you know it or not, I think the reason why this is applicable to us today is, is that God is building your life. You see, he is shaping, molding, directing, strengthening, encouraging, inspiring you. Uh, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, is he talking about the football game that you're going to play on Friday night? Well, God's on our side. He's going to help us win the game. <laughs> no, context is everything. All right. What he's saying is, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
is that if God has a hold of you and he is going to will and to work in your life for his good pleasure, if he is going to shield you with his power, if he is going to uh, save your soul, heal your soul, give your life meaning and purpose, he's going to build you into a holy temple, a house that is pleasing to him. And then when this happens, your life is going to be so full. It's going to be so joyous. It's going to be overflowing with the wellspring of life, so that even in the face of death, even in the face of suffering, even in the faith, uh, face of downtimes or persecution, guess what? Your joy can never be shaken. If God is for you, nothing can be against you. Nothing can take what God is doing in you away from you. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can hurt the body. Be afraid of the one who can hurt the soul. And so that's why if God is for us, who can be against us? Mm. And what I want people to understand is that the same faith that allowed these early Christians to sing hymns to God and kneel in prayer to him as they were being executed in Nero's circus is the same faith that is in you today. You may not feel you're living it. You may not believe you're walking in it or even have the capacity to have that kind of faith, but God does. You see, John the Apostle said, we have overcome the world. We have overcome these things that make us believe that we can't exercise or experience this kind of faith because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And when we grab a hold of this principle and this truth, verse 9 and 10 really come to light. He goes, you are a chosen people. Don't forget, he's building you into this house, right? He's doing all this work in you. This faith that they had is the faith that's within you. You just need to unleash it. And he's saying, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, once you were lost, once you didn't have a name, once you didn't have a place, you didn't have value, but now you have a family, you have a name, you are a people. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You are God's chosen people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received the mercy of God. We've basically been given a new identity, right? What bonds us together into one family as a church is the redemption of Jesus. We're now a people, his people. Um, And what makes us his people is that we've received his mercy. Mm -hmm. And that's an amazing thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And once we truly know and understand this principle, you know, as you encapsulated it, then we know he kind of goes to this next section of how to live in a pagan society. Well, let's define that. What is a pagan society? Well, I could go and I could start with Rome and say, well, Rome was a pagan society that had many gods. So it was a very diverse society. You know, you had people that were committed to Apollo, the war god. A lot of those people served in the military. You had people that were would follow Zeus. A lot of people that were involved in uh, sensuality and sexual pleasure. And so they worshipped in the temple of Diana. And there was all these other gods. And in a way, we could go through all of this arcane stuff, or we could just look at America and realize that America is a pagan society. Mm. Now, that's pretty salty to say. Uh, are there a lot of Christians here? Yes. But there are more pagans than there are Christians in America today. Now, does that nullify the beauty and the purity of the founding principles of our nation? No. But if we become completely pagan, all of those principles will be lost. Mm. Because when you become pagan, guess what? 
There is no truth. There's no absolute truth. So words can mean whatever you want them to mean. And you can make any meaning associated with them. And that is where things get crazy. Mm, So listen to what, so that's a pagan society. And he says to them, this is how you're going to live in a pagan society. He goes, therefore, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Yeah. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So he says, first of all, look at your place here. I love America. I've traveled a lot. I always love coming back to America. I love what America is founded on. I love those founding principles, even though I believe today that we're in danger of losing them. If we, you know, I I believe Ronald Reagan was right when he said we're one generation away from losing freedom. Right. Mm. But I think, um, I'm also realistic to know that a lot of what's happening in America today, uh, is counter to that counter to those things. And so he's saying, um, even though I love America and I love living here, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Guess what? My citizenship is in heaven. Right. And because it's in heaven, that's what allows me to continually look to help make America a better place. And so he's saying to these people, you should have the same view. You are a foreigner and an exile. And then he goes on to say this. He goes, look, I implore you. He says, uh, it, uh, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So you can live in a way that is attractive. Now that doesn't mean we change our truth or we change our convictions to make people happy, but it does say is that we will be committed to righteousness. And in the end, that is a shining light in the darkness. Verse 13, he says, and this is where it gets really dicey. Because remember, who is it persecuting Christians? Nero. Nero, who is the what? The emperor. emperor right? And all of the government the is now... Per- yeah, listen to what he says, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Notice the government authorities were persecuting Christians. But he said, submit to this. Here's the Tacitus quote that I didn't finish on last Sunday, but he wrote even more. Mm. And this is what he said. Now, Tacitus was an early Roman historian and he was not a Christian in any way, shape or form. And he didn't like him because he just didn't know anything about him. But listen to what he said about how Nero tortured Christians in their very deaths. They were made the subjects of sport for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses, or set fire to. And when the day waned, they were burned to serve for the wedding lights. There's actually an artistic rendering of what they would do, is they would take Christians, they would wrap them in briars and and things, they would douse them in oil, put them in a cage, they would light them on fire to light up Nero's party. Mm. So they were used as torches. He goes on to say this, Nero offered his own garden players for the spectacle and exhibited a 
Circensian game, indiscriminately mingling with the common people in the dress of a charioter or else standing in his chariot. For this cause, a feeling of compassion arose towards the sufferers. Though guilty and deserving of exemplary capital punishment. So notice what he says. These Christians are, should be put to death. He goes, because they're guilty. He goes, because they seemed not to be cut off for the public good. They were but victims of the ferocity of one man. So what happened by submitting to it, they showed how ferocious and corrupt this person was and they gained sympathy. Mm. And so I think that's really fascinating. So I believe that that teaching, and we're going to talk more about this on Thursday, was uh, to be applied. They lived under a dictatorship. And what is the only way that you can show the corruptness of a dictator? And I think uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote extensively about this. And we'll go into a little bit of that on okay. Thursday. So what he's saying is, if at all possible, though, be subject to human authority. Verse 18, he goes on to say this. He goes, slaves, you know, half of Rome was slaves. And so he goes, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your master, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is comm commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I think what's really fascinating here is what he's saying is, first and foremost, this is not a doctrinal proposition that supports slavery in any way, shape, or form. Right. What he's saying is that you live in a system where this is the law of the land. And he said, these people are pagans, right? These people are pagans. So... If you then try to do things that are uh, wrong, okay, and, and try to use your faith as an opportunity to commit crimes, guess what? You're going to be punished for that. There's nothing commendable in that. But boy, if you do what's right, if you do what's righteous, then that is commendable. In the South, you know, we'll talk about this on Thursday a little bit. You know, Jim Crow, Crow laws were by the government, okay? And they were unjust and unrighteous. And Martin Luther King, what they did is like in Birmingham, they went and they protested and the cops came out and kind of hit them and beat them and then arrested them. And it was in that act where they showed how, look, we were beaten. And he uses this passage to, to prove his point. It was the fact that we were punished for breaking their law that proved their law was unjust. Right. You see, and that's what Peter is arguing. And this is where the whole notion of civil disobedience was birthed in Western culture. Okay. Now it's totally different when you live in a dictatorship, you see, and not in a democracy. And we'll talk more about that differentiation. And he says, but in the end, he's not making an argument a hundred percent for pacifism, right? He's not doing that. Because some people are saying, no matter what, you're supposed to just martyr yourself for Jesus and you'll be happy. Well, 
I have to say that the scripture is clear that there is a time and place for that. Mm. But there's also clear in the scriptures, a time and place where we must stand for righteousness. We must stand for justice. And America was designed to allow people to stand more often and more prevalently. And we'll get into that more on Thursday. But I think it's really important to understand that Jesus is the overseer of our soul. And ultimately, the best way to live in a pagan society, even a pagan America, is not to try to take matters into our own hands, but follow the path that he has laid out for us. Absolutely. Well, fantastic teaching. Once you really understand these historical contexts yes. in which this was written, it, it really reveals a lot about it. And I can't wait to see how these biblical principles will be applied to our nation today when we talk about them on yes. Thursday. Oh, it'll be so excited. But that's, you know, that's Thursday. I'm excited as well, but it'll be Thursday. So thank you guys so much for joining us today. We're again, happy to have our very own Salty Pastor back on the desk. Um, he's back and we're going to be moving forward. Lots of very exciting series that he's uh, clued me in on that we're coming up on um, this one and then obviously the next one and um, just all the rest of this year we're, we're packing with really great series that I'm excited to be talking about and sharing with you guys so thank you guys so much for joining us and we'll see you on Thursday here on the Salty Pastor Podcast Blessings <laughs>